The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Acts to the Root with Bojidar Marinov, where you get a Christian Reconstructionist perspective on the pressing issues of today. Welcome to episode 43 of Acts to the Root Podcast, part of the War Room Productions. I'm Bo Marinov, and for the next 20 minutes I will be getting in trouble, which means I will be speaking to modern American Christians and conservatives about the biblical view and historic Christian practice on an issue about which they think as liberals and progressives. Have you ever noticed that American Christians, when challenged with a biblical or historic, that is conservative position on some issues, respond as progressives, but we live in different times today? Just like progressives who like to say about the Constitution or about the Second Amendment, but we live in different times today. Well, immigration is one of those issues. Every time I point to modern Christians or conservatives in general that the Bible doesn't allow the state to control non-criminal individuals and that America was an open borders country historically, that is conservatively, the answer is, but we live in different times today. Different indeed, the lowest crime rate ever, the lowest number of terrorist acts per year ever, the highest level of safety and prosperity ever. I mean, such times are the best times to tremble in, in fear, right? But such facts are of no consequence to people paralyzed by fear. And that's exactly what modern American Christians have become. It is for this reason Donald Trump's ban on accepting refugees and in general the immigration restrictions policies of the federal government in the last 100 years have met such thunderous applause among today's American Christians. We are safer and more prosperous than ever before and yet we're more scared and fearful than ever before and thus the times are different now so let's cheer for policies that have no support in the Bible and have no support in the history of Christendom but were always policies of the enemies of God. But my point here today is not to argue about the facts. There's plenty of evidence that much of the reporting about the threat of Islam or terrorism or of the refugees is either exaggeration or plain fake news. Thomas Edelman has exposed some of it in his blog post, uh, Legitimizing Lies. Others have done it too. I have done it in some of my articles. My purpose today is to examine some of the assumptions we make today about the kind of society we want to have in principle and the relation of that society to safety and security. I know we have had a previous episode where I talked about safety, security, and state worship, so it may sound like I'm repeating myself. I'm not. We just need to address the issue of safety and security from all its points because of this idolatry of fear we have among the majority of Christians in the United States. An idolatry which trumps everything they read in the Bible and is effectively destroying the gospel testimony of the church in the United States. Donald Trump's immigration ideas ban on refugees from certain countries and immigration restrictions in general have been praised and supported and rooted for by the majority of Christians on the basis that they are just common sense. You know, when you're facing that humongous threat by Islam and Muslim terrorists, it is common sense to close your borders and isolate yourself so that you can fend off the threat. Now, for the purposes of our talk here, uh, we will ignore the fact that the threat is really insignificant and doesn't deserve the $100 billion spent every year on it, in addition to the half trillion spent on dropping bombs on Muslim countries, which create resentment fueling terrorism in the first place. Our focus this week will be, is it really common sense to close our borders to refugees in order to achieve safety, even if the threat was real? Let me start with common sense. 
or rather the deception involved in the phrase common sense. To explain that deception, I need to return you all back to the 1990s, the longest decade in my life, and perhaps the longest decade in the lives of millions of Eastern Europeans. The longest because it made us meet with the worst discrepancy of expectations and reality. Communism had fallen politically, but the economic and social effects of communism were still around. In the first five years after the fall of communism, the economies in Eastern Europe were still in shambles. There were shortages and food was scarce. In this situation, it looked like common sense that the government should control in one way or another uh, prices and goods and, and should keep the regulations and price controls which were a leftover from communism. After all, with the scarcity of food, if there were no regulations and price controls, food would be so expensive no one would be able to afford it, right? Well, with the low prices, everyone could afford it. It, it just wasn't there. At times, it was a daily struggle to buy food. Bulgaria, a country which for most of its history has been a net exporter of food, was struggling to feed its own people in the 1990s. So the government employed its common sense and imposed regulations and price controls to make sure people could afford to buy the little food that was offered on the market. Things got worse and worse, of course, and for what reason, I don't know. At some point, the public opinion started changing from the traditional common sense of regulate them to make it affordable to the novel, radical concept, also called market fundamentalism by some opponents, of just let them produce, freedom to produce. So eventually, the parliament and the government decided to experiment with, or of ours, a liberalization of prices and production defying the common sense by an act of parliament the bulk of regulations on food production import export and pricing were removed overnight so now the speculators could take advantage of the shortages and where a loaf of bread used to cost 25 cents they could sell it for 2.5 dollars now if they want it now the average monthly income was a little over 100 dollars at the time guess what it never happened First, within just a couple of weeks, the stores were full with food. Prices first jumped just a little bit above the previous regulated levels and then quickly dropped back to below them for most products. Most of it was imported, for the agriculture was desolated under communism, but within a few years, owners of agricultural lands figured it out. By year 2000, Bulgaria was back to being a net exporter of food disproportional to such a small nation. Even today, this is the country with the lowest food prices in the European Union. There's still tons of problems to solve in the politics, the economy, and the society in Bulgaria, but this one is a clear success story. Put it on your list to visit one day. You may be shocked to find how much food you can buy for your dollars. And it's real food, not Walmart junk. The lesson was that common sense was not common sense, or rather that what passes for common sense is in fact not so common that it is conditioned by our religious presuppositions. The previous common sense was based on a metaphysical view of reality, that there is a certain metaphysical amount of goods in the world, and that in order to not have people starve, the government had to intervene with a metaphysical solution, namely regulate the prices and the distribution of that food. The problem turned out to be, surprise, surprise, ethical judicial. Food producers and importers liked to be free and therefore didn't like regulations and price controls. Notice it wasn't even about money since the prices eventually settled down to lower than the previous price controls. It was all about liberty and justice. They would produce only if they were free and independent of bureaucrats. 
Thus, only an ethical judicial solution could work. Common sense was not what we thought it was. It was contrary to our instincts. Uh, scratch that. It was contrary to our presuppositions. Yeah, I know, this would come as a duh to most Americans. What's the big deal about it? We all know that the supply of, and price of any commodity depends entirely on the initiative of the, of the producers. Thus, it is obvious common sense that government regulations won't work. What most Americans don't realize is that we're besieged by thousands such examples in our own personal lives in America, in our communities, and in our social and political and economic endeavors, where our common sense is actually not common sense, because it is not informed by nor based on covenantal, that is, ethical judicial presuppositions, but is rather informed by inherited cultural bias, which is seldom biblical or covenantal. The Bible, in fact, speaks of such conflict between common senses. And guess what? This conflict is one of the major conflicts in the Bible. Common sense is not an objective reality. It is conditioned by religion. And in many places in the Bible, God contrasts the common sense of his law word to the common sense of pagan religions and man's word. Some of the examples are more obvious and mundane, but some are spectacularly radical and literally turn the world upside down. The most radical, of course, is in Matthew 16:25, Mark 8:35, and Luke 9:24. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What passes for common sense, the instinct for self-preservation, is really not common sense at all. It is those who sacrifice themselves that get life, or expressed figuratively in John 12:24 and 1 Corinthians 15:36. The seed doesn't come to life unless it dies. Another, just as radical, has to do with principles of leadership, Matthew 20, 25 through 27. To be a leader among the Gentiles, one has to learn how to lord over uh, uh, people. But in the kingdom of God, whoever wants to be a leader must become a servant, a slave. Or, as Dennis Peacock expressed it in a lecture about 30 years ago, whoever serves, leads. In a similar vein, we see the conflict between two views of common sense in 1 Samuel 8. The elders of Israel had abandoned God and wanted a king to solve the problems with the arbitrariness of the courts and national security. I mean, what could be more common sense than having a king to deal with these issues? Isn't that what the government is supposed to do? Look at all the nations around. Don't they all have their kings? Samuel's view of common sense, informed by the word of God, was to the contrary. Having a king won't make you more safe and secure, for your king will be your oppressor. Scrap that nonsense with having a strong central power and strong borders. Return to God as your king, obey his law, and you will have safety. Common sense in the final account is not so common, and it's not really sense, that is reason. It is nothing more than the outworking of a faith. When the faith is false, the common sense will be false too, and you will know the faith of a person by his views of common sense. This is an important truth to keep in mind when we look at the modern conservative and Christian view of immigration controls, and especially on the travel and refugee bans of Trump's administration. The main argument for such controls and bans is supposed common sense. We live in such a dangerous world, you know, with so many enemies trying to destroy, destroy America, you know. Therefore, it only makes sense to close our borders and thus provide safety for the U.S. and its citizens. Again, such dangers are grossly exaggerated and even imagined, given the real data. But is that common sense really common sense? Could it be that such common sense is based on a false faith and is therefore false? Is it possible that the Bible has a different common sense for us? 
and what does the Bible say about strangers and national security. In my lectures on immigration of two years ago, I laid out the principle for our biblical immigration policies. These principles, if we follow the testimony of the Bible, must be first that the same law must apply to the stranger as to the homeborn. This, of course, applies to the basic rights of individuals against the state, not against God, the rights protected in the second table of the Ten Commandments, namely life, liberty, and property, if we appropriate this convenient summary. And second, that the function of the state is only to punish evildoers, not to control non-criminal individuals, which means any person who has not committed a crime, as the Bible defines crime, should be left free to pursue his goals and improve his own life and the life of his family in any manner he decides and in any place he decides. These two biblical principles, of course, logically lead to the only biblical defense, defensible uh, immigration policy, namely open borders. Since some people are eager to misinterpret this concept, I will only throw in that open borders for non-criminal individuals is not unprotected borders against criminals or hostile armies. It only means that as long as we have individuals for whom we have no proof to be part of an army or to have committed a crime, we should not stop them from traveling or from seeking gainful employment or safety for their families. Now, when we have a testimony against certain individuals, that's a whole nother ball game altogether. In those lectures, I also expounded on a concept that is embedded in the biblical view of borders and the stranger, namely a society that is a city of refuge, which means a society which opens its gates and borders for people fleeing slavery, persecution, or other injustice. It was not just the cities of refuge within Israel where someone who had killed a person without intent could flee to. Israel was supposed to be a society open to the world to see and taste, and to the world's poor and oppressed to flee to and join. There were no laws that established any restrictions on immigration, nor was there any institution that would control immigration. To the contrary, the law expected that strangers would freely come to live in Israel and take advantage of its liberty and economy and even of its system of care for the poor. The charity that the law prescribed was to be extended to the poor not only of Israel but also to the stranger. Gleaning was to be open to all, including the stranger. Leviticus 19.10, Deuteronomy 24.21. The tithe each year was to be deposited in the towns for sustenance of the poor. Uh, actually, each third year. Uh, and the stranger in town was entitled to eat from it. Deuteronomy 14.28-29. But there was more. Refugees from oppression were to be allowed free entry and liberty within the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy 23:15-16, You shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. In other words, not only was Israel to have open borders and full legal protection to immigrants, it was supposed to be a sanctuary society. Now keep in mind that Israel was not the United States, a mighty and populous nation protected by two oceans, the technological miracle of the world spending on its military and security as much as the 20 largest nations combined. It was a small nation surrounded by greater nations all utterly hostile to it and its god, lacking any centralized authority or professional standing army. The surrounding nations were ruled by military hierarchies, which normally went on military raids to acquire slaves. This meant that any fugitive slave could belong to a military leader in a neighboring country. Offering such a slave a sanctuary could mean a foreign policy conflict, leading directly to war. 
Our common sense today would tell us that such sanctuary policy would be detrimental to the national security of Israel, and yet God specifically commanded that runaway slaves were granted freedom and full legal protection in Israel. Such sanctuary was not limited to slaves, however. Any individual could immigrate to Israel and settle and become a citizen, even if he originally belonged to the enemies of Israel, even if Israel was at war with them currently. In fact, such defectors seemed to be extremely valuable, and they often became political, military, and religious leaders. Rahab is a well-known example, but there are many more. Caleb, the leader of the largest tribe, Judah, was a Canaanite. Meanwhile, his own countrymen, the Canaanites, were one of the Canaanite tribes whose land God would give to Israel, Genesis 15:19. Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, was a Hittite, another tribe whose land was to be taken and the tribe wiped out, and yet he was a neighbor of the king of Israel and a captain in his army. Obed-Adam was a Philistine, a compatriot of Goliath of Gath, and yet the Ark of the Covenant stayed in his house for three months, 2 Samuel 6.11, and he and his 68 relatives later served before the Ark in the tabernacle, 1 Chronicles 16.38. If Israel was as fearful as modern Americans, and if its borders were close to immigrants in times of wars, worse than anything America has experienced, these men would never be able to come to Israel and join Israel. Man's safety is in closed borders and building walls. God's safety, true safety, is in building a sanctuary society. In comparison, the pagan nations around Israel were all close to immigrants. Edom would not allow Israel to pass through their land. Egypt had closed borders, and a permission by the pharaoh was needed to settle in it. Pagan Greece and Rome denied any rights to non-citizens. How is it then that God commanded Israel to be a sanctuary society in the midst of so many enemies who had closed borders? How was God planning on building safety? The answer is that the safety of a nation is not in its isolation, but in its relations, and specifically in its evangelism in a way to those outside. Israel had a superior culture of superior liberty and justice for all. Nothing in the pagan world could compare to this. That's why the nations were invited to see and experience the law of God in action. Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8 establishes this function of Israel and its laws as evangelistic tool. Quote, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do this in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgment as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? End of quote. Solomon, in his consecration prayer for the temple he built, declared the same principle of evangelism through open borders in 1 Kings 8, 41 through 43. Quote, also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people of Israel, when he comes from a far country to, uh, for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name in your mighty hand uh, and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you, as do our, your people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. End of quote. The principle was clear. 
A godly society is a sanctuary society. It is not afraid to keep its borders open. It welcomes the stranger and grants him protection. It especially welcomes those who flee persecution and sets them free. And it invites the world to come and experience the superiority of its liberty and justice for all. By doing this, a sanctuary society wins the hearts and the minds of its enemies, that is, in a way, evangelizes them, and thus prevents wars and disasters. A paranoiac society which keeps its borders closed and returns the slaves to their masters earns only the hatred of the world and the wrath of God, and there is no wall nor immigration policy that can prevent that wrath. This was the accepted common sense of Christian America for three generations after the War for Independence. America kept its borders so open and invited the huddled masses of the world, yearning to breathe free, to come to its shores and join it. And as long as America did it, it grew and prospered and became the mightiest nation on earth, commanding 50% of the world's GDP. Until, in 1920, a coalition of socialists, occultists, racists, and warmongers was able to change the tide and pass the first immigration restriction laws. After 1920, America was no more a sanctuary society except for a very short time in the 1980s. And it is more insecure today than ever. Contrary to man's common sense, closed borders do not provide safety. Only a sanctuary society can be safe. When we as a nation reject the plea of the oppressed and return them to their oppressors, God delivers us to our worst fears. That's why Trump's executive order will only bring more insecurity and more danger on America. The reading I will assign for this week are two essays by Gary North. One is old and exists in a PDF format and can be searched through Google, The Sanctuary Society and Its Enemies. The other is fairly recent and is titled Immigration Control, Federal Social Engineering. And as usual, I will ask you to consider supporting Bulgarian Reformation Ministries, a mission in Eastern Europe which has been preaching and teaching the comprehensive application of the gospel of Jesus Christ to every area of life, from personal ethics to institutional justice, and has proven to be successful in its work. Visit BulgarianReformation.com, subscribe to the newsletter, and donate. And God bless you all. This was a Reconstructionist Radio War Room production. Acts to the Root with Bojidar Marinov. Please visit BojidarMarinov.com and ReconstructionistRadio.com forward slash Acts to the Root. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.